Good morning, Mercy Hill. If you would, go ahead and grab a seat, and we're going to begin this morning with a word of prayer. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you that we can come and worship you. God, we thank you for a beautiful summer day. God, we thank you for the glory and the splendor of Jesus. And Father, as we sing these songs, I just pray for each heart that's entered into this room this morning. God, we know that this building is not the church, that the people are the church. And God, we bring our hearts to you this morning. Lots of things that have been going on this last week. And God, I pray that as words are spoken over us, as we engage in reading your scripture together, as we engage in singing truths about who you are, Father, we pray that by the work of your spirit, miraculously, that you would enable us to take the words that are in our mouth and the knowledge that's in our heads and that you would apply that to our hearts in a way that we would be changed, in a way that we would find joy in you, Jesus, in a way that we would see you as, as the uttermost, as the one who is glorified, as the one who we praise and worship. So God, thank you for each heart who's here today. Pray for uh, those who are experiencing hardship, those who are experiencing sickness who aren't here with us, uh, those who are suffering pray for friends who are experiencing um, depression. And God, we pray that today that we would find our hope in you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're so glad that you're here and that you're worshiping with us, especially if you're a guest who's here today. Really grateful that uh, you would take time on a Sunday to come and worship with us. Our family's been in Charleston this last week, or Katie and I have, and we want to say thanks to you guys. Uh, Thanks to the Pins and the Stiglers for uh, letting Mac hang out with you. And um, we were there this last week with the Soma Family of Churches. And Soma is a network of churches that are committed to making disciples and seeing uh, the gospel saturate the U.S. and the world. And so we were there with like-minded friends and pastors in Charleston, seeing what God's doing in that city, praying together, uh, being trained and refreshed. And we just want to say thanks. We're so grateful for... Um, the way that you love us and enable us to go and get away and be resourced and to do things like that. We pray that we'll be able to take what God's shown us and pour it back into you. Um, so we're just grateful to be here this morning. And uh, we'll ask if you would stand together. Michael has a call to worship for us. And um, he's going to lead us in that as we sing together. We have a friend who is from Clarksville who's going to be... Uh, preaching this morning. His name's Joshua Young. He and his wife Rachel are here, and so we welcome them. We'll tell you more about them in a little bit. Michael, kick us off. All right, if you would look at the screens with me at First Chronicles 16, 28 through 30. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. If you would bow your heads with me. God, we thank you for a new day. Thank you for yet another opportunity to worship you together. Hearing your words sung and preached, what a blessing that is to do together. God, we take this moment in our service, not as a time to pause before going to another song, not as a time before reading another scripture, but to come before you as broken individuals. 
We have all fallen short of your glory, but God, you have consistently redeemed us of our sins. You've saved us from our lowest moments through your death on the cross. So we take a moment to confess sins of this week to you privately. God, we thank you for the sacrifice you've made for us as your people, as a congregation. I would like to take this moment to to think about your day, your week, and to spend a moment with God in prayer about the sins you need to bring before him. So let's do that together. Just a moment. Think about your week. Think about the sins of this week. Confess them to God. We'll take just a moment. are so thankful to have a God like you that truly loves us and cares for us. We thank you for this time together and then you have assured us of the pardon of our sins. We thank you for your Holy Spirit guiding us through each day. We love you. We thank you for everything you've done for us. Amen. If you would look at the screens with me at Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we still we, we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die to, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us love for us in in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, guys. While our younger kids are heading back to their classrooms for fun this morning, our bigger kids, today's story is called Let's Go, and it's going to be about Jesus in the desert, And it's from the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Same story is told in all three of these Gospels. After Jesus was baptized, he went straight out into the desert. Hmm. That might seem like an odd place to go because, as you know, deserts are very hot. Kind of like Memphis in July, right? And there isn't any food or water or places to stay. But Jesus needed to get away by himself and be somewhere quiet 
and lonely. He needed to be with his heavenly father to get ready for his new life. In the desert, Jesus thought about the secret rescue plan he had made with God. Before the foundation of the world, they both knew what would have to happen. To rescue God's children, Jesus would have to die. There was no other way. It was the reason he had come. Now, that old enemy, the one who had spoken through the snake to Adam and Eve back in the garden, remember him? Y'all remember him? He didn't want Jesus to rescue God's people. So he lied to Jesus because that's what he does. He lies. He said, are you really God's own son? He whispered. Poor you. God must not love you. You don't need to die. Do it my way. Yes and no. Jesus said to the liar, I will do what God says. And from that moment on, nothing would ever be the same. You see, Jesus wasn't like Adam. Jesus was a new kind of man. He would not believe the terrible lie that the enemy spoke. Jesus knew God loved him and he would trust God no matter what. It was just as God had promised to Adam and Eve all those years before. Jesus had come to do battle against the snake's work. He would get rid of the sin and the darkness and the tears, and he would suffer, but he would win. Jesus left the desert and set about the great rescue. He was going to get God's people back. But first, he needed to find some helpers and friends. He had a lot to do. He would need some people to help him. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Hmm, clever ones? Rich ones? Strong, important ones? Some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you they'd be wrong because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just have to need him a lot. One day, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee when he saw some brothers and friends mending their nets. They were poor fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Let's go! Peter, Andrew, James, and John looked up at this man on the shore, and they couldn't explain it. Their boats needed to be put away. Their nets needed mending. Fish were still wriggling on the shore. But something about this stranger made them just drop their nets and their fish, leave their boats and everything, and follow him. This God-man was like no one they had ever met. When they looked at Jesus, their hearts filled up with a wonderful, forever sort of happiness. And inside, it was as if they were running free in an open field. Jesus asked 12 men to be his helpers. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, another James, Simon, Thaddeus, and Judas. Meeting Jesus would change all of them forever. Will you pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much that before the foundations of the earth, Lord, you had a rescue plan in place, Lord. Before you created a single thing, God, you knew that we would mess it up. 
and still you had a rescue plan in place. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he was obedient. Thank you that he listened to you and not to the lies from the enemy, Lord. I pray that having the Holy Spirit inside of us, Lord, we would be able to do the same, Lord. We would be able to listen to you, to know the truth of your word, Father, that we might be able to use your word, your scripture, Father, as a sword to fight the lies of the enemy, Lord. He knows each of our soft spots, Lord, the things that we are afraid of, the things that make us wonder, the things that make us doubt, Father, and he pushes on those, Lord. But I pray for each of these children and I pray for each of these adults, Father, myself most of all, Lord, that when the enemy tries to speak those lies, Lord, that we would do what Jesus did, Father, and that we would know your word so intimately, Lord, so well in our hearts, Father, that we would be able to speak those words back to the enemy, Lord. Father, thank you for the power that is in your scripture. Thank you for the power of Jesus' name, Lord. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts to be able to receive the teaching that you have for us, Lord. And that we, when, when we leave, Lord, we would be able to put all that we have learned, all that we have heard into action, Father. That it would change the way we live Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and throughout our week, Lord. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Alyssa. Well, you guys are in for a treat this morning. Uh, today, you're going to have the privilege to hear Josh Young preach. Uh, Josh and Rachel are here with us this morning from Clarksville, Tennessee. I met Josh maybe four years ago. Has it been that long? Through a mutual friend, Robin Mefford, Robin and Jim. And um, we met, and Jim's gone on to be with Jesus since then. And um, we got to know each other, and it doesn't take long for church planners to get to know each other. And so Josh has become a good friend. And um, he was going to be in town this weekend and ask if he'd be willing to preach. We've partnered with Josh recently, and he'll tell you a little bit more about the church plant that they're part of. You guys are four years in now? Two years in since launch. Okay. And so... Uh, Josh has also come along beside our church most recently, just in the last couple of months. And we've signed an agreement with Heartsong Counseling. And so Josh is a counselor who they found over COVID that Zoom actually works pretty well for counseling. And so uh, Josh has come along beside us and he works under the authority of our elders. And so as he counsels with people over Zoom... He shares updates with us. And sometimes individuals need expertise that, that our elders or missional community leaders just don't have. Um, sometimes they just need to hear a different voice. And so Josh has already come along beside a couple of people. And um, we have a stipend that we offer along with that to help people. And so if you're in need of counseling... Um, Know that this is an option that you can use. One of the things that's been so meaningful to me is that when I refer someone to a counseling organization, I don't always know what each individual counselor believes. Or even if I knew the counselor five years ago, I have found over time that I hear that they've counseled someone in a way that's no longer in alignment with the gospel or with the truth of God's inerrant word. 
And so it's really important to me to know that, I'm, that we're lock and step with the gospel, with the truths of God's word, because counselors offer really powerful words. And so anyhow, I look forward to you hearing from Josh this morning. Know that you can trust what he has to say because he believes in God's word, and so that's what he's going to be preaching to you today. He'll tell you a little bit more about his context, but he, just like us, is seeking to make disciples. And so Sunday morning is something they do, and they come and they celebrate. It's not the main way in which they express being the church. Their heart is to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and the everyday stuff of life and to make disciples just like we're seeking to do through missional communities. So Josh, if you would, come on up. And uh, man, I'd love to pray for you real quick. And then, man, share God's word with us. God, thanks for Josh and for Rachel. God, thanks for the call that you've put on their lives. God, the way that you've rooted them in Clarksville, and God, the relationships that you've allowed them to establish. God, the men and women who have already come to know Jesus as a result of their hearts for you. And God, today as Josh preaches, I just pray, Father, that we would hear clearly from your spirit and from your scriptures. Um, God, would you make us aware of the fact that the spiritual world is so much larger and so much grander And God, who you are is so much bigger than what we oftentimes experience in this physical world. But God, you give us glimmers in which we see you even in the created world. God, because this is your world. It's all yours. And so just as we sang these powerful songs of desiring to surrender, God, through your spirit, would you enable us to do that this morning, to come under the authority of your word and surrender uh, to your spirit, God, and all that you command us to do knowing that we will live joyful lives as we follow you. Speak to us through Josh now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, friend. And guys, it's so great to be with you here this morning. Um, As as Brad had said, uh, we actually, I got to tell you a funny story. Um, So we have a tax lady, okay, that's in Maryland. That's where Rachel and I are originally from. And she has some clients out here in Memphis. And so four years ago, we were coming out here because we were doing our taxes. And so Jim and Robin Medford had told us about you guys, about Mercy Hill. So we ended up staying over on the Sunday. I think it was when you guys were at the movie theater. I believe it was a movie theater, right? And, uh, and so we ended up staying at the movie theater with you guys on a Sunday. Brad was so kind enough to take us out to lunch afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I did want to share one just incredibly special thing. So how many of you guys have ever had like an unexpected gift? right? So it's like after your birthday, after Christmas, and you're hanging out with a friend, and all of a sudden they come around and they pull out a gift that you hadn't expected. Have any of you ever experienced that before? Have any of you ever had that? Okay, I'm seeing some heads, heads nod, right? So, so that feeling of joy and excitement of an unexpected gift is how I feel about Brad. I really do. Like, he is such a gift. Um, when we hung out with him four years ago, he was just an unexpected gift to us as, as friends and partners. And we really share a similar ministry philosophy as well. And so, uh, I, as, as Brad had mentioned, I'm, I'm actually launching a biblical counseling practice in Middle Tennessee. So, Heart Song Counseling has been around for about 15 years. And they wanted to start and kind of break into the Middle Tennessee area. And so, that's kind of why I had given Brad a call uh, a couple months ago we began to talk and now we're partnering together with Heart Song Counseling. So if you want to hear more about that, 
I've got some brochures in the back. It's to your back left, my back right, as I'm looking back there. I've got some business cards as well, and if you'd like to kind of see a little bit more of our philosophy. But why I'm here today is to bring the word. And so I'm really excited, and it's a real privilege to share with you what God has really transformed Rachel and I's life with as it relates to the scripture. So you guys are in a series called Follow Me, Learning How to Be with Jesus. So as, as Brad described to me, it's both truth, but also seeing the practical elements of the truth of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the sermon today is titled, Follow Me to Death, Learning to Be with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So wherever you are today on your spiritual journey, I know Brad and I know Mercy well enough to know that you are welcome here, wherever you might be on the spectrum of your spiritual journey. And what I want to talk about today is what it looks like for us to die so that we can truly live. You see, the Bible teaches us that it is only when we die to ourselves that we are able to be freed up to embrace the life of Jesus. And our main point for today is this, that when we let go of control and we die to ourselves, we can begin to cling to the cross of Jesus and find our life in him. And we're in Mark 8. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Mark 8, uh, we, in this context, Jesus is literally walking to Jerusalem and his coming death. He knows that his death is on the horizon, uh, the horizon and He's walking to Jerusalem. And as Jesus in the text is walking to Jerusalem, to his death, I want to invite you this morning to follow Jesus to the cross, to the road to the death of yourself and to what you know so that you can fully embrace the life of Jesus and a life that is abundant. Let's look with me at Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus said, He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now my friends, in the book of Mark, the focus is on Jerusalem. Jesus hasn't yet been there. 
in the book of Mark. And Jesus is moving towards his inevitable sacrifice and his death. And he is, there's a shift here that happens right here in this text in the book of Mark. Up to this point, Jesus has been demonstrating his power. We see this with him healing people. We see this the lame are walking, the blind are seeing. He's demonstrating his power and his boldness. But there's a shift that happens here in Mark 8 where he begins to demonstrate his submission moving towards his suffering and his death. So he's demonstrating his power. Now he's demonstrating his submission. But right before this, a blind man is healed in Mark 8. And what we see is that Mark places the story right before this passage we just read because it's a metaphor of the disciples' blindness. The disciples are blind to who Jesus is. They fail to understand really who Jesus is. And I often think that we do too. And so the disciples are confused about Jesus in four ways. They're confused about who is Jesus. They're confused about what does Jesus do. They're confused about how he's calling the disciples to join them. And they're confused about why he's doing all this. So the first thing that they're confused about is Jesus' identity. Who is this Jesus? And actually there's a call back here. Back in Mark 4, Jesus had calmed this raging sea. They're in the middle of a boat, the Sea of Galilee. He calms it. The storm is calm. And, and they, the disciples, at the very end of this chapter, after this amazing experience, um, they ask this question. Mark 4, 41. And they were filled. This is the disciples. These are the guys that are following Jesus. It says they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the disciples are confused about Jesus. They're astounded by what he's doing. And they're calling him teacher, right? So that's what the disciples are calling Jesus. They're calling him teacher. Herod questions who Jesus is. He's like the king of the known world, okay? And he's questioning who Jesus is. He thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead, okay? And then Jesus is consistently referring to himself as the son of man, which is actually a callback title to the Old Testament, where it's referring to the coming Messiah who would sit in judgment and rule and reign over the world, okay? So (laughs) here's the deal. It is all over the map about who Jesus is. And there is this tension in the book of Mark that he is building about who is Jesus. And the disciples are in the dark about Jesus's true identity. So the first question, the first confusion that they have is a question of Jesus's identity. Who is Jesus? The next question is, is what does Jesus do? It's a question of his actions. It's clear that the disciples don't have a definitive understanding of what Jesus is actually here to do. They're confused about what he's doing here on earth. Now remember, these disciples are teenagers. Okay, so they started to follow Jesus most often, most likely when they were teenagers. And so he speaks in parables. They're confused half the time. He's like healing people and they have no clue. They're seeing the lame walk. They're seeing blind see. But then the rabbis are getting really mad at him. He's like crafting a whip of cords and like beating the the people out of the temple, calling that his father's house. Like like these teenagers, their minds are blown. They have no clue what's going on. And my... And I think if you and I were there with the knowledge that they had, we would be confused too. So they have no clue about what Jesus is doing. Some people think that Jesus is going to come and overthrow the Romans. Some people think he's going to become the king of Jerusalem and set up kind of an opposition to Rome. 
And some are literally following Jesus to get more loaves and fishes because they're hungry. And they just want some free food. They want a free handout. So there's a confusion about Jesus' actions. Next, there's a confusion about what the disciples' role is. There's a confusion that the disciples have about themselves. Like, how is Jesus calling them, right? So they're following him around. They're serving the poor, but he's doing most of the work, right? He's doing the healings. He's doing the feeding. He's doing all this stuff. And they really don't understand their part to play. And they didn't show up, and Jesus didn't give them a three-ring binder called church planting in the first century, okay? He didn't do that. Like, he just said, follow me. He did a bunch of confusing, miraculous things, and that's kind of how their relationship with Jesus was for three years. So there is a clear confusion about their call and how they're participating in the mission of Jesus. Which, by the way, they don't even understand Jesus' mission, much less their part to play in it. And finally, his motives. Why in the world is he doing all this, right? So he's, they're, confused about his, they're confused about who Jesus is, his identity. They're confused about what he's going to do, his actions. They're confused about how they're supposed to join him. And they're also confused about why in the world is he doing all of this stuff? What is Jesus' motivation behind the things that he's doing? My friends, I think these four questions, what, who, what, how, and why, are the same questions that many of us are asking today. And many of our friends and neighbors are asking today. Who is Jesus to me today? Is Jesus angry? Is he loving? Is he excited about me? Is he disappointed in me? What is his attitude towards me? Next, what is Jesus doing? A lot of times life is just not clear. What in the world is Jesus doing in the world? Next, how can I join Jesus? What are my next steps in life, right? Like, what am I actually supposed to be doing? And finally, why does Jesus do all this? My friends, sometimes life is confusing and difficult and hard. And it is really challenging. And so the question that I think many of us ask, especially when we encounter suffering or difficulty, is why in the heck is Jesus allowing this to happen? So, in, in the book of Mark, What is so interesting is that Jesus is surprisingly comfortable with the ambiguity. Like, he doesn't have to have all of this clear from the get-go. He literally just says, follow me. And the disciples are confused, but they're following Jesus. And on the dusty road of Jesus, wildly and inextricably confused, the disciples are being discipled. The disciples are actually growing in their knowledge of who Jesus is, even though they don't even understand what's going on all the time. They're being prepared and trained for the greatest missionary endeavor in human history. That's what's happening as they're confused, as they're following Jesus, even if they don't understand what's going on. So what have I told you today? That in the midst of some of the most confusing, challenging, unexplainable moments of your life, that God is preparing you for your greatest work and your most important mission. That's what we're looking at today. And as Mark 8 is the watershed moment in the book of Mark, it's literally the transition between Jesus' expression of his, his power to his expression of his suffering. I want you to have a watershed moment today as we explore four things together. That's what we're going to be talking about. It's the question of who is Jesus, the question of what does Jesus do, the question of how does Jesus call us, and finally, the question of why does Jesus do all this. So first, who is Jesus? The answer is, is that Jesus is revealed as the Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. Look with me at Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do you people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So, so Jesus is staying outside of the city in kind of smaller villages to be able to teach the disciples. And as he's walking, so this is how it would typically work with a rabbi. As you'd follow a rabbi, the rabbi would walk in front and, and the disciples would walk very closely behind him. But he was leading. That's literally when he says, follow me. Like that's not in a metaphorical or literal sense. It's also in an actual physical sense as well. Like follow me as I'm going and doing all these things. So, so the disciples are close by Jesus, walking with him. And as they're walking, he is teaching. So they're kind of huddled around him following him. And he's doing this survey with them to teach them about himself. He's like, who do people say that I am? And it's clear that people have a high view of Jesus. There's the list of John the Baptist and Elijah. They're some of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And like I mentioned before, Herod even questions the identity. This is his grace in answering their question. And Mark actually gives us the answer in the book. Um, And at the page one, chapter one, verse one, Mark actually sets us up with who Jesus is and then is silent until Mark eight. And he does this to create attention. So look with me at Mark one, one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark gives us the answer about who Jesus is literally Page one, verse one, chapter one, first sentence in, he says he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And then the whole rest of the book, up until Mark 8, we've been waiting for this to come to the disciples. We've been waiting for them to get it. And so Peter steps up and he declares what we have been waiting for and what Jesus will ultimately make public in Mark 14 in front of the entire world. This is what, if you've been reading this, if you were to read the book of Mark like it was originally meant to be read, which is like, like, a, like a letter, right? So you're just kind of reading it through completely. You would see the theme of, okay, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Okay, why don't they get it? When are they going to get it? And finally, this watershed moment where Peter says, you are the Christ. And Christ is a title, okay? That's, my name is Joshua Young. Okay, that's my last name. But Jesus Christ, it really is best understood, Jesus the Christ. It is a title. And that title means anointed one. It means savior. It means Messiah. You see, Christ is the one who formed the world. Christ is the one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the one who was foretold of from the ancient of times. He was the one who was promised to save Israel. He was the one who will set the world right again and rule and reign over all things. Christ is the one who will judge the world with rightness and justice. And so when Peter says this word, you are the Christ, all of those things are implied when he says you are the Christ, the long anticipated one. The Christ is not simply John the Baptist. He's the one who formed the very hairs on the head of John the Baptist when he was in the womb. Christ is not just Elijah. Christ is the one whom Elijah invoked when he defeated the prophets of Baal. And this Christ is standing in front of the disciples right here, right now, and Peter gets it. And my friends, this Christ stands in front of us today. And so I'm going to ask four questions at the end of each one of these. I'm going to ask a question after each one of these, these sections of our talk today. And the first question is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? See, I find that a lot of people who've grown up in the Southern context, there is a general belief about Jesus. 
I, you hear it, right? And you believe that Jesus was a real person. That he, was, he died on the cross for my sins. People say that quite flippantly sometimes. But here's the deal. That's not what makes you a Christian. Just because you saw Jesus on a flannel graph growing up in Sunday school doesn't mean that you are a Christian. What makes you a Christian is if you hear, believe, and obey. HBO. Real simple way to remember that. You have to hear this message, but then you have to believe that it's true for you, which means that you have to enter into this belief. You have to enter into the story of Jesus, seeing your deep need. That's what part of coming to faith is. If faith is hearing it, it's hearing it. It's, it's believing that it's true for you and then obeying by making Jesus Lord and Christ over your life. That's what this means. That's what it means. And if you have not had a moment, a stake in the ground, where you have heard it, believed that it's true for you, and obeyed by making Jesus Lord over your life, you are not yet a Christian. And that is the most loving thing that we can say to you today, is that you have to hear this message, believe it's true for you, and obey by making Jesus Lord and Christ over your life. Have you submitted to Jesus as the Christ? That's the first question. First point, who is Jesus? Jesus is revealed as the Christ. Second, what does Jesus do? The answer is, Jesus the Christ suffers and dies. Look with me at Mark 8, starting in verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. My friends, after this victorious declaration, after this watershed moment in the book of Mark that we've been waiting for, Jesus is the Christ, the disciples finally get it. What Mark told us on the first page, now they're finally starting to get it. Jesus immediately says, don't tell anybody. You're like, why in the world does he say this? Why would Jesus not want to scream it from the rooftops that he's the Christ, that people begin to follow him? My friends, Jesus had a better plan. You see, Peter and even others in Jesus' crew, they wanted to define Jesus as a mechanism to overcome the Romans. They wanted to politicize Jesus. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But they wanted to narrow Jesus' salvation to something that was political and something that was physical. And so that's why Jesus told them to withhold this. Because Jesus had a better time. And Jesus actually reveals himself as the Christ in Mark 14. And it was much more powerful. So let me set up the scene before we read that. Jesus has been betrayed. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is in chains. He is blindfolded. He is mocked. They're hitting and smacking Jesus, telling him to prophesy who hit him because he was blindfolded. He's at a mock trial in the middle of the night, completely in secret, completely unjust. And this is what happens. And the high priest stood up in the midst of them and asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Remember the callback from Mark 1, Christ the Son of God. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So my friends, in chains, blindfolded, at a secret, unjust trial in the middle of the night, in front of his accusers who are lying about him on the cusp of his death, the God of the universe willingly submitting to his chains, preparing for his final suffering, his substitutionary death, 
that's when Jesus reveals himself publicly as the Christ. This is not the Savior the Jews were looking for. This is a Savior in weakness, not strength. This is a Savior in submission, not power. This is a Savior in persecution, not authority. We would never have chosen it to be revealed this way. But this is exactly what it meant for Jesus to be the Savior, that he would suffer and die. And that's where we get to verse 31. So that's a, that's a forward looking. This is what happened. This is why Jesus told them not to say anything. So going back to the disciples, he, Peter says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And then he begins to tell them how he will suffer. He will be rejected. He will be murdered. And then he will rise again. And so he tells them that I am going to suffer. And this is where we get introduced to the theme of Mark. The theme of Mark is the suffering servant. It's the suffering Savior Christ. You see, this goes so countercultural to what the Jewish people were looking for, to so much of what they envisioned the Christ would really be. They wanted the Christ to bring salvation from their oppressors, not to suffer at the hands of them. And isn't that ironic? Is that's what happens. The, the Romans were the ones that actually killed Jesus. And so they wanted a Savior to save them from the Romans, but Jesus ended up suffering at the hands of the Romans, willingly. And that's so ironic and paradoxical. But it's such, the, the message of Christ is that he is not the Christ that we want. He is the Christ that we need. He then says, he will be rejected. And he goes categorically through, and it's kind of hard for us to see in the 21st century Memphis about what it meant by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. But what that literally means, it, that list makes crystal clear that this would be a comprehensive rejection of Jesus by all. All of his people, the representatives of Jesus' people, comprehensively would reject him. And this is directly juxtaposed to him being the Christ. So it says, you are the Christ, but none of the Jewish people, none of the representatives of God's people will accept you as the Christ. They will reject you. Next he says, I'm going to be murdered. And this would make no sense to the disciples. How in the world can the Savior save them if he's dead? How in the world can he accomplish salvation if he's gone? They struggle to see his purpose in this. And we'll see this with Peter's response. And finally, and and then he says he's going to rise again. And Jesus says this over and over and over again in all the gospels. But it seems like the disciples just gloss right through it. It seems like they don't even understand it. They don't even hear it. This goes to show that they still don't understand. They're still confused about what Jesus' actions are. And they're still confused about why he's here. Like it wasn't even mentioned. Now, for the next part, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem. He's walking up to his death. Jerusalem was actually militarily very strategic, set on a hill, okay? So they're walking from the valley of Caesarea Philippi up to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus is teaching. The disciples are close by, and then he's got some broader disciples that are kind of following back, and he's doing this thing while he's walking. And so this is kind of the scene of this next Phrase. And I'm actually just going to go back and read it again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So this means that Peter, who was supposed to be following behind his rabbi, he comes up equal to Jesus. He pulls him to the side and begins to tell him what for. He begins to rebuke him for saying these things. Why in the world would he do this right after he just acknowledged that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior, that he's the long-awaited one? Why? 
Because it's important to understand who Peter was. Peter was a zealot. That was a Jewish faction. It was a radicalized Jewish faction that opposed the Romans ruling over them so much that they were willing to become terrorists in order to accomplish the goal of overthrowing the Roman government. So they wanted to take up arms. Peter wanted to work to accomplish the salvation that the Messiah was going to come. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to do the work. He said, let's take up arms, let's strategize, let's overcome these Romans to fulfill this messianic prophecy. Peter wants to win. And suffering, rejection, and death don't look like winning to Peter. And so in his anger, and I really think in his fear, he pulls Jesus aside. I think the anger is really an expression of his deep fear that Jesus might not be the savior that he wanted. And he pulls him aside and he begins to tell Jesus that he's wrong. And my friends, it's easy for us to stand in judgment over Peter 2,000 years later, isn't it? But I think Peter's blindness is our own. I think we want to be the savior of our story, don't we? Don't we have such difficulty not being the savior of our own stories? Don't we have such difficulty when we see someone in our lives struggling? We see our children struggle. We see our spouse struggling to try to step in and be God in those moments. My friends, can you and I be comfortable not picking up arms and being the savior of our own life? See, the scripture actually helps us see the centrality of Jesus' suffering and our lack of ability to be our own savior in Hebrews 2. Look with me there. But when we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. My friends, the pathway of our salvation, the pathway of redemption, is marked with the suffering and the death of Christ, not you and me. Not our suffering. Not our death. We need a substitute who took the punishment. And without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so often we try to be the savior of our own story. And this is where we enter into kind of the theme of what Brad has been developing the sermon series around about the practical elements of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So some of you might be here today and struggling with laying your lives down and worshiping your children as little gods, consumed with pleasing them and centering your lives on them at all costs. And Brad actually mentioned this a couple weeks ago in his sermon about it. I think it was a parallel passage. Some of us worship and idolize our spouse. Some of us try to be the savior of our spouse, trying to fix them, melding our lives together in a codependent attempt to try to be Jesus in their own life, right? Trying to be a God to our own spouses. And what happens is, is when you try to do this, when you try to be the savior of your children, or you try to be the savior of your spouse, or family member, or somebody else in your life, you're trying to be Jesus to them. And what happens is, if, if you continue on that path, it will draw you away from community. It will draw you away from seeing the church as a family. It will draw you away from the church as friends. And what we'll begin to do is we'll begin to kill your soul in isolation. And we've seen this some, and we've seen even this with COVID and with what has happened over the past year and a half. People have become isolated. People have become more lonely, and they've turned to one another to try to be each other's savior. And it just doesn't work. And so the suffering Christ stands in front of you today. And the second question I have for you is this. 
Do you believe, do you truly believe that you need Jesus to suffer for you as your substitute? And the challenge is, are you willing to stop trying to suffer as the insufficient savior of your children or your spouse or the people around you, trying to fix others in your own strength? Can you believe that Jesus has already done that for you and be invited to come into family and into friendship and into rest? So the questions of the text, who is Jesus? What does Jesus do? Jesus the Christ suffers and dies on our behalf as our substitute. So we don't have to suffer and die on the behalf of other people. Third, how does Jesus call us? Jesus the Christ calls us to die. Mark eight thirty three. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, if you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. My friends, Jesus rebukes Peter back and it's not an equal rebuke. The disciple is reminded of his place, but I actually think it's in a very physical sense. I just picture Peter and Jesus, Peter pulling Jesus to the side. And I just, this is, this is Josh's, Josh's box of thoughts, okay? But I actually think it's an imaginative thing that I, I think might have happened, where Jesus places his, his well-worn hands on Peter's shoulders and pushes him back down the mountain. Because he says, get behind me right? That's what he tells Peter. Get behind me. Remember, they're on a mountain. So I really think he put his hands on Peter's shoulders and said, get behind me. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And the call of Jesus is to get behind him. It's to follow him. It's to go where Christ goes. It's to walk where Christ walks. And it's to do what Christ does. My friends, how often do we try to tell Jesus what to do and how to do it? How often do we try to pull him to the side and say, no, I want to dictate my own life. But this is the beauty of the call of following Jesus. Jesus says, come after me. And if anyone wish, would wish to come after me. You see, the beauty of following Jesus is that we get Jesus. We get to follow him. We get to experience him in all of his fullness. We get to experience his life. And we get to experience his life within a new family called his church. We get to have a new community. And there's three things that we do to come after Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And my friends, some of us are struggling to deny ourselves this week. Some of us use others in our life to satisfy our loneliness or insecurity. Some of us are still controlled by alcohol or drugs. Some of us crave distraction addiction to gaming, food, or substances, or some of us are even succumbing to pursuing work or money to try to accomplish security or self-reliance in our own life. My friends, the call of the Christian, the call of Jesus is to follow him, to deny those things, to deny the immediate, to follow the eternal Christ who stands as Lord over our life. It's time to die today. It's time to follow Jesus into the death of ourselves. Second, he says, take up your cross. Now, this instrument of death, and Brad even talked about this a few weeks ago, is not a happy message that, that we understand it today, that we wear uh, as earrings or around our neck. But the closest thing that I could come to as to what this is, is your electric chair. The electric chair is an instrument of torture, right? But it's only for a few minutes. It doesn't even pale in comparison to what the cross was. But essentially, Jesus is saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Embrace your electric chair. Carry it on your back and follow me to death. That's what he's saying. Pick up your cross. Third, he says, follow me. 
My friends, where was Jesus going when he picked up his cross? He was going to Golgotha. He was going to the place of the skull, the place where he would ultimately be crucified. And we are not called to pick up our cross and go to a field of flowers where it's roses and buttercups. We're called to pick up and follow Jesus to the death of ourselves. To follow Jesus to the death of our selfishness, to building our own kingdoms, our immediate self-gratification, our preferences, our comfort, our fighting maybe even to do more, work harder, or be better. And my friends, this dying Christ is standing in front of us today. And the third question I have for us is this. Are you willing to be a son or a daughter of God? Taking up the mantle of Jesus, dying to your selfish desires so that you can walk in Jesus' life and freedom. That's the invitation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like. And it's so much better than trying to do it on your own. Because then you don't have to be the Savior. You don't have to bear the weight of being Savior in your own life by your actions or in somebody else's life by codependency. So who is Jesus? Jesus is real, does the Christ. What does Jesus do? He suffers and dies on our behalf. How does Jesus call us? He calls us to die. And why does Jesus want us to die? Why does Jesus call us? Because he wants to give us his life. Look with me at Mark eight thirty five. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? My friends, Jesus' death is the only way to true life. Jesus wants you to thrive. Jesus wants your deepest needs satisfied. He wants you to have marriages that are unified, co-laboring together for the gospel in your community, co-laboring together on mission. He wants you to have singleness. If you're single today, he wants you to have a singleness, be a source of contentment and not anguish. Jesus wants you to grieve your sin and run after his righteousness. He wants you to follow him with your life and experience his resurrection power in your life. Do you want that? Do you want that today? Then here's the deal. You have to go to Golgotha with Jesus. You have to follow him to the cross. You have to follow him to the death of yourself. Why? Because you cannot get the resurrection power of an empty tomb without the hard road of the cross. But when you do, you receive his life. He takes your brokenness and gives you his goodness. When you die to yourself, you are not just left dead. He infuses his resurrection life and power that he has already earned for you on the cross. He gives it to you immediately. My friends, the goal is not self-help. The goal is giving up so that Christ can make his power in your life and his life evident in you. And I think that there are some things that keep us from following Jesus. I think there's actually three things. I think there's pride, control, and distraction. Pride says, I think I can do it on my own. Control says, I'll show you I can do it on my own by manipulating my environment, right? I want to control things around me. And then when I fall or fail, because I can't control my environment, because I can't do it on my own, I'll overindulge so I can still embrace the illusion that I can do it on my own. Distraction. So I think pride, control, and distraction are things that keep us from the rest and the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. And the gospel has a response to these things. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might 
walk, what? In newness of life. This is the upside down view of God's kingdom. This is the invitation of the suffering servant Jesus. Do you want newness of life? Go to the ancient of days. Do you want ultimate purpose? Submit to Christ's purpose in your life. Do you want to gain your life? Lose it in Christ. Do you want to live? Then you die. And here's the greatest truth of your life. The greatest work that you will ever do is to die. Your greatest struggle will be to give up pride, control, and distraction. To lay your life down before Jesus. But this is why Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you what? Rest. This is why when we give up the pride, the control, the distraction, when we give up trying to be our own savior or the savior of others, what then happens is that Jesus can be the Christ over our life. Jesus can be the Messiah. He can be the savior. And this living Christ stands in front of us today. And the fourth fourth question, the final question I ever use is, are you willing to embrace this new, incredible, infinite, universe-changing life of Jesus that he has available to you? Are you willing to let go so that you can receive it in you? Now, if you're here this morning and you look over the course of your life, like I said earlier, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that means you haven't put a stake in the ground and said, yes, I choose to follow Jesus. I want to invite you today to consider to do that, to hear this message, okay? To believe that it's true for you, that you actually have a need that only Jesus can meet. And then to die to yourself by making Jesus Lord and King and Christ over your life. You can do that. You can do that today. You can do that right now. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you look over the course of your life and you have chosen to do that at some point in time in your life, Christ is your life, but you can still live in your former passions. So as we conclude, Paul in Romans 8 is actually writing to followers of Jesus. People have already put that stake in the ground. And he says these words. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I have some practical points for us as we leave here. If you're a follower of Jesus, how can you be led by the Spirit? Because that's what he says. Don't live according to the Spirit, but be led by... don't Don't live according to the flesh but be led by the Spirit. So how are we led by the Spirit? Just four things. Personal time with Jesus. This is abiding. This is spending personal time with Jesus consistently in your life. It's got to be the real deal. You can't fake it till you make it with this one. You have to personally spend time with Jesus consistently, receiving his life, submitting under his lordship, making him Christ over your life. Second, consistently embracing friendship. That's one of your values here at Mercy Hill. It's it's friendship of a church family, right? Becoming friends with one another who love Jesus, following together, eating, sharing meals together, coming to your missional communities, not letting the past year just go by and set you into this new pattern of not coming back, of just saying, well, I can do it on my own. You need friendship. You need the friendship of Mercy Hill. Committing to a church family, truly committing to this church family, putting your stake in the ground and saying, we are with this family for our city. We are with this family to follow them together. And then finally, and this is uh, the fourth thing, is humbly receiving specialized help. Some of us need pastoral care. Some of you need to meet with Brad. 
to come under his authority and his leadership because he loves you. He cares for you. I know he prays for you. I know he labors for you and has been laboring for this church family for what, a decade, over a decade? Like he loves you and cares for you. Some of you need to meet with him and follow him. Some of you need counseling. And that's actually why we, that's why I'm here today, right? There's, some of you need some professional work to work through some of the heart idolatry coming alongside of you. But my friends, this, at the end of the day, I just want to remind you of these things. It's important to view these things in light of the gospel because it is not your activity that accomplishes your salvation and your reception of God's life. It is your submission to Jesus activity on your behalf and the Holy Spirit's empowerment in your life. So this goes back to our main point. When we let go of control, when we die to ourselves, we can begin to cling to the cross of Jesus and find our life in him. And a mind and heart focused on Jesus, on his humility, on his control of the universe, on your weakness. All of that is key. And when we do these things consistently, to give up this momentary sin, this momentary indulgences, it will only serve to remind us of the truth of Colossians 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you that you have saved us that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, you are our Christ, and you are our friend. And you have went to the cross for us so that we don't have to go and die for other people in our life. We don't have to try to change people. We don't have to own being other people's Savior. And then we also don't have to save ourselves by either distracting or we don't have to try to work harder. We don't have to even follow along these fleshly patterns. But we can be free when we submit and die to ourselves and we submit to your will. We submit to your life. And I pray that we would do that today. And as we enter into this time where we're considering communion, following you, Jesus, I just pray that we would confess these things before you that we would release our hands of the control and the pride and the distraction so we might cling to your cross. In your name we pray, amen. Um, Brad has graciously allowed us to be able to pray for you guys. So if over the next few minutes, Rachel and I are gonna walk in the back, it's to your left. And if you would like to receive prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Thank you. We're gonna worship together uh, in our missional communities and we're gonna worship um, through communion. As you prepare to take communion, I know that you're probably a lot like me. As Josh talked about those portions of your life where you need to surrender. And he gave some broad categories. You know, he said alcohol and drugs or um, the idolatry of, of spouse or kids. But there was probably one of those main things that he mentioned might have hit your heart. But there was probably something that he didn't know about. Something that's personal to you. Something that involves anxiety towards the future or maybe anger. Something that involves fear. Something that involves a relational component or something in your life that you're trying to control that Jesus just asks you to lay down. And so as we move together into our missional communities, and if you're not part of a missional community, just find a group that's celebrating communion together. Let's remember Declare the gospel. Have someone in your group declare the gospel and remind us of the good news of Jesus that we can lay those things down because Jesus has already done the work. So let's worship together through communion and then we'll sing a song before we leave. Let's pray and we're going to worship through one last song. Father, thank you that we can 
offer our lives to you. And God, we're reminded that this is a daily practice of surrendering to you and walking in the identity that you've called us to, that we're sons and we're daughters. And God, that you love us, that your, your arms are open and they're extended to us. God, that there's nothing that we have done or can do that will separate us from your love. So God, would you remind us of that? God, would you help us to know that if we aren't experiencing joy, God, if we feel as if um, your face isn't turned toward us, God, it's not because of you, but it's because of us. And so help us to turn back to you. And help us to trust in you. God, thank you for the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ that we embrace daily. And that we walk in your obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Be seated. Uh, if I know we've run just a few minutes late today. If you've got a baby in the nursery you need to check on, feel free to do that. I just will have one last uh, story I want to share with you. Um, Caleb, will you come over here for a second? We're going to pray over Caleb and send him out. Caleb's headed back to Howard College uh, in Washington, D.C. He's been with us um, kind of post-COVID. And um, I just want to say, Caleb, that you're going to be dearly missed, brother. Um, Caleb, God has used Caleb in so many ways in my life to be a blessing. I've had the opportunity to disciple him along with Ellis and uh, one of my sons, Cole. For the last four months, we've met weekly on Mondays from 3.30 to 5.30 and hung out some in between. And um, I've seen God at work in Caleb's life. I, I knew Caleb from years ago because he lived beside Bill. And so when I would go to Bill's house to swim, I would oftentimes see Caleb. And you were back in high school then. Yeah. And so that was a few years ago. And it's just amazing how God knits stories together. One day during the snowstorm, Bill was here at the church and Ellis was here. And Ellis had just come to know Christ and Ellis got his truck stuck, and Bill helped push him out. And then they discovered that they were both coming to prayer time. I wasn't here. There was this much snow. So they prayed together. And um, a, few, a couple weeks after that, Ellis was interested in discipleship. And I said, well, who else could we have joined this group? And Ellis said, I don't know. There's this guy named Caleb that we prayed for. And I said, Caleb? Caleb that lives beside Bill? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I know Caleb. And so I reached out to Bill and I said, do you think Caleb would be interested in discipleship? And, and Caleb, I think you had shown up once with Bill for a prayer time when early Thursday morning at 6 a.m. And all these random occurrences that aren't random. And um, just seeing how uh, God has enabled us to really quickly have relationship. And Caleb has been so humble. Um, he's put up with me for the last four or five months saying really hard things in his life. And um, he's had a rough summer, and God has just been so gracious to him. God. <laughs> yeah, and so maybe sometime when it's not so fresh, maybe, you know, when you come back for a break or something, I'd love for you to share just your testimony of what God's been doing in your life. But we send Caleb off back to Howard, I think with a really different spirit than maybe the first year you were there. Yes, yes. And um, we'll let you share that sometime. But man, I'm so proud of you. I, uh, I just think of you almost like a son. And you've been such a blessing to me and to our family. Um, Caleb's come into our life and he's, he's mentored Mac. And he and Mac have a close relationship. They're fishing buddies. And so they both love to fish. And they've hung out and played piano. And man, you, you have, God has used you to express his heart to us in worship. And I think that he's taught us a lot about worship through you. 
And so, man, you're going to be very missed. But we're sending you out knowing that you'll be back. And also knowing that as we send you out, we send you out on mission. That you go knowing that the Spirit of God has given you gifts that he's going to use there at Howard College. Whether it's with other worship leaders and other music leaders or in many, many ways. And so we're thankful for the healing that we've seen in your heart and your life and your family this summer. And um, we're really excited to send you out. So I'm just going to ask a couple of friends to come up. Come down here with me and just uh, pray over you. Bill, if you would come up. You've been a good friend to Caleb these last few years. Cole, would you come up? Where'd Cole go? Okay, and Ellis isn't here. Ellis is traveling, but Cole's been in our discipleship group. And then, Mac, you want to come up? Yeah? And um, we're just going to pray over you and then have our benediction. Father, we thank you for Caleb. God, we thank you for the wonderful way that you've created him. God, you've given him such a passion for life. You've given him uh, such a great mind and personality. And God, I know that you are going to use him to be such a blessing and a gift to others there at Howard. God, as he goes back, I pray that he would enter into a season of rest this fall as he heads back to college. I pray that you would use him as a resident assistant as he ministers uh, to other college students. God, I pray that as they interact with Caleb, that they would sense your spirit. God, I pray in the same way of his namesake that you would give him a courage to move with a boldness even when others say no, that Caleb would listen to your spirit and that he would be a man after your heart who says yes. God, continue to bring healing to his heart, to his family. God, thank you for all that you've done. God, I I know that you're going to use Caleb powerfully. We thank you for the time that you've shared him with us. We know that he is a gift to your church. We look forward to see how you'll use him as he's sent out from here to Howard and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me grab uh, my phone and I'll read our benediction. Let me invite you to stand and extend your hands uh, as you receive this. And Josh and Rachel are in the back. Stop by, pick up some of their material just to understand who they are. You may have a friend... No one needs counseling, but you might have a friend that needs counseling, right? So just grab some of their material and take it with you. We all need counseling. Ephesians 6, 23 through 24 says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You're loved and you're dismissed.